In our book study of Nehemiah, we are walking through uh, all of chapter 7. Tonight, we're going to walk through a cool 73 verses. How does that feel? That's a, yeah, that's a good, that's a task. But don't freak out. Uh, A good chunk of it, about 60 verses um, or lists. Let me ask you, why in the world do you think God put so many lists in the Bible? Like lists of names, um, tribes of Israel. I mean, have you ever come across a list and then like stopped reading and just went to a different book because you're like, this is way too many. How many of you have made it through the book of Numbers? Anyone? A couple of you? Yeah, to the book of Numbers, right? Let me, but, but seriously, though, let me get just a little bit of conversation started. Why do, you, why do you think God would include so many lists in the Bible? You could write about anything, but he has that included. Any thoughts? Yeah, it really happened, for sure. What else? Planning? Yeah, for sure. Historical evidence, planning, definitely. Yeah, so genealogy, right? And why would genealogy be important, particularly in the Old Testament? Yeah, covenants with Abraham and Moses and David and the promised land and and the promises of God in the Old Testament. Um, We need to know who Israel is, and through that, we need to know who and where the Savior is coming from. It's all part of prophecy and part of the big picture plan of God, for sure. I mean, in general, if you sum it up, um, say God cares about people. God knows each and every one of us, and... um, Sometimes it's funny because the things that we would skip over, just like Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Kansas might be flyover states, a passage like tonight, if you're studying it uh, on your own, could be a flyover passage. Um, But there's a lot of meaning in in what is written. And so we don't want to create things that aren't there. But uh, if you dig in just a little bit, you'll see um, that there's some value in it. And so the list that we see tonight is also in, essentially in Ezra chapter 2. If you compare the same books, remember we believe that the same author wrote both of them as they all happened about 14 years apart. But we're going to be talking about establishing kingdom community. A big switch is happening in the book of Nehemiah. He goes from the first six chapters all about uh, building a wall. It goes back and restores Jerusalem and he's about to uh, populate it. So it goes from construction, 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 all about buildings, all about walls to now it's all about people. And if you look close enough, you see that it really was all about people, even through the first six chapters. But now it's very significant. It's obvious that that the priorities are shifting. It's like if you ever built a home or you bought a home and it was empty and it just felt weird when it was empty. And you knew you owned it, but it wasn't a home. It was more just a house until you filled it with people and the things that make it um, feel like a home. And so that's where we're at right now in the story. Nehemiah has, in 52 days, accomplished this massive, awesome undertaking of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, still kind of unprotected. They could get attacked at any point, but he's getting ready to populate this thing. He knows there's a whole bunch of people that are going to come back, the exiles. And so the list that we see are about exiles coming back. And he knows you can go through great success and follow it up with great failure. Nobody wants to build a big building and then not have any people to go in. There's a whole bunch of beautiful big buildings that people call churches that are empty, right? And we know the church isn't, um, isn't a building. It's people. Now, those people might go into a building, but you can't go to church. You are the church. And so we're going to see what it looks like 
uh, for Nehemiah to establish community and organize community now that he's got these walls built. And so for us, we recognize um, just like these exiles are returning from a hundred, roughly hundred years of exile into uh, a foreign land, and they're returning back home just like people who are set free from sin in Christ, um, who have been captive, are coming back, and now they're able to enjoy, you and I, a new kingdom where Christ is king and we are the servants. And this is the kingdom of God that we're talking about. So you'll see some parallels, and that's what I want um, to focus on as we walk through this tonight, is to show um, that what Nehemiah was going through isn't so much different than us. When you think about the kingdom of God, and if you see Matthew chapter 13, this will be reiterated in a couple different parables, but if you think about the kingdom of God like a garden, and Ultimately, when we talk about planting churches, when we talk about making disciples, of course, we want to plant all over the state of Kansas and all over the world. Um, you might not have a clue as to how that's done. It's not like there's any perfect way to do it. Uh, there's lots of ways to plant churches. But we're going to see some things um, tonight that, that show us that are part of establishing uh, the kingdom of God wherever we go, whether it be in our own home um, or a grow group or a new city. And ultimately... Uh, if you see the kingdom of God like a garden where every time the gospel is shared by disciple makers like you and I, um, then seeds are planted. And we know um, that it needs good soil, and we know that it needs to be watered, and we know that it needs to be uh, in an environment conducive to growth, even though no one can cause the growth. And if you're a gardener, you know. You can take care of something all day long, and sometimes it doesn't turn out right. <laughs> Anyone who probably planted tomatoes this year probably feels that way, at least we do. And it can be difficult. You can try, 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 but you can't do it. But ultimately, that's what church planning is. Uh, that's what Crosspoint was when we started. Um, that's what most churches look like, even in their early stages. Seeds of the gospel planted, and then you, as leaders in a congregation, cultivate an environment where the gospel takes root in the hearts of people, and that ultimately, the end goal is fruit is produced that glorifies God, that his kingdom expands all over this world. So let's jump on in. We're going to spend uh, time talking about six keys to cultivating kingdom community. Verses 1 and 2. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, so this is the transition, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Some people think he's talking about just one person because he refers to one man, but in the next verse, verse 3, it says them. And so uh, it's more than likely a couple of them. And so first thing we see, he built the walls. Now he got to appoint leaders. He's got to appoint godly leaders. Nehemiah does it. He knows you need it. Two things we find out here. Number one, biblical community needs leaders. That's affirmed all throughout Scripture. And number two, somebody's got to appoint them. Um, so you might argue or ask, well, can anyone be a leader? I mean, could I be a leader? Who, who can be a leader? And you've got to understand there's lots of different kinds of leadership in the Bible. There's what we call lay leadership in that there's things uh, even at Crosspoint, whether it be the cafe or uh, something like a welcome team. There's things that you can do um, that don't require pastoral qualifications to do, but you're still leading in a different capacity, right? It's an important uh, work, but it doesn't have the same leadership qualifications as others. And in that case, just like Nehemiah, because he's not necessarily appointing pastors, he's appointing uh, governors 
to be in charge over Jerusalem. He was a governor. And he says, because he was faithful and God-fearing. He was faithful and God-fearing. When it comes to um, the congregation stepping up in different leadership positions, a lot of people don't see themselves as leaders, and they don't think, well, I could ever be qualified. But you've got to recognize there's a lot of leadership positions outside of pastoral ministry that um, if you're God-fearing, if you're faithful, um, God might just want to use you in ways that you never imagined. He used me in those ways before uh, I felt even called to uh, pastoral ministry. But on the other hand, there's um, pastoral ministry. You see in the New Testament five types of, um, five words for leadership in, in the New Testament church. And essentially, they're boiled down to two positions. One of them would be deacon, which can be man or woman, deacon or deaconess. And it is a servant. And this is an example, a model example of a servant of Christ. And there's qualifications for a deacon. Um, the other position is really four words, four Greek words. Uh, you got bishop, overseer, elder, and pastor, all used uh, interchangeably for one general position. So if you ever hear in churches, they say, uh, well, we have elders. And well, over here we have pastors. Um, you might even find in some denominations, they say bishop or overseers. Um, ultimately, they should be, and it's not always this way because man does funny things, but it should be referring to one, one general position, which is pastor, elder, or pastor shepherd. It's the same general idea. And so those four Greek words are all used for that one position. And in that, the Bible gives us qualifications. Titus, First and Second Timothy, First Peter, you'll see the qualifications for, um, for that. And so you've got to have the right leaders, both uh, those who are volunteer leaders, those who are lay leaders, those who aren't in pastoral ministry but are still leaders in the church, just like Nehemiah sets up. But also when we set up the kingdom of God, we plant churches, you need godly um, people, men and women who are leading in all kinds of, um, all kinds of ways. Now, this is important because some people will get confused as to how in the world, uh, maybe this is, I don't know, maybe you guys don't care about this stuff. We'll, we'll go through it anyway. Um, how in the world do we appoint like pastors? Um, because here's the, a few things that people would generally look at and say, well, maybe we should look at them. Um, number one, talent. People think, well, if they got the right gifting, there's a lot of people who have uh, good gifting, but they don't have the character um, that it takes. Some think it's education. Well, who went to seminary? Who has the most training in this thing? Some people think it's seniority. Well, Bible says, says elders, and technically we see those over 40 in the Bible were considered elders just in age, and those under were not. Um, but maybe we should just look for the oldest, most wise people in the church to be the leaders. Um, listen, there's a lot of older people that aren't necessarily wise. There's a lot of educated people that ain't necessarily smart. And there's a whole bunch of people who have uh, talent that don't have godly character. And so you've got to be careful. Here's a few things, though, when we see the whole totality of God's word when it comes to um, those called specifically to pastoral ministry. A few things. So this is different than what Nehemiah just appointed. But for the sake of um, talking about leadership being appointed in the church. Let's talk about pastoral ministry. Three things. Number one, God calls. There's got to be a calling on someone's life. And um, if it was only calling, then there would be a lot of discrepancy. You'd say, well, how in the world do I know one person's called over another? I felt a warm fuzzy one time. Does that mean I'm uh, called to pastoral ministry? No, you need a burden, a God-given burden that you can't shake. People ask me on occasion, how do I know if I'm called to ministry or not? Um, are you absolutely 
burdened for the things of God, for the gospel? Um, are you willing to stand up in the face uh, of persecution? Are you, are you willing to put yourself out there? Um, because ultimately, to be a pastor, uh, even though we might put them on stages, you're proverbially washing feet. You're the chief servant. You're to get down and scrub the feet of the saints. That's your job. It should not be uh, one that is desired in a worldly way. Because it's probably not going to pay much, if it pays at all. And you're going to take criticism that you never realized was there. You might not think people dislike Cross Point Salina or any of the other churches in town if you don't hear people saying, well, I hate that church in town. But if your name <laughs> is written on a business card somewhere as pastor, like you're going to find out people are disgruntled. Not all the time, but people have opinions and they have views. And you're going to find that you're taking heat for things you didn't even realize um, people were thinking or feeling out there. And so you've got to have a God-given calling and number two, the church has to appoint. So how do you find out who's faithful um, and trustworthy? By faithful and trustworthy people. You don't just want one person appointing another person. It's not impossible. But you want godly people to appoint and to test and approve. That's what the New Testament says. Um, there needs to be a time where you don't just take someone's word. Well, I'm called to ministry. You need to see their life. You need to see their character. And that takes time. Um, there's some churches or denominations that have processes where they make people go to seminary for years. Uh, we're in the Southern Baptist denomination. We don't require people to go to seminary, um, but we ultimately have what we call ordination, which is a time of testing and approving where people, godly people can see your life and, and test and approve uh, that you are called because you are living in a unique way. Um, and ultimately that points to the third, um, third part, and that's the candidate qualifies. When it comes to just serving in a lot of Areas, like we said, faithful and God-fearing. That's, that's a big chunk of it. Uh, but when it comes to pastoral ministry, you can't do what we love to do in 2018, which is anybody can do anything and everyone uh, can do whatever they want. That might work in America. It doesn't work in the church. Um, you can't just wake up one day and say, well, I'm going to be a pastor. And you can't tell me no. <laughs> no, you gotta, you got to be called. you got to be appointed. And you have to have the qualification um, and again, you can see in Titus, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and 1st Peter, the majority of those qualifications. Um, but it's there. So let me ask you guys, do you know your local leadership, how they were appointed? Do you know their calling? Do you know their qualifications, their character? You've got to be around them enough to know. You've got to check in on them. You've got to hold them accountable. Um, one problem in America where you see moral failure happening in the local church is that a lot of times those with moral failure, if you really dig in, don't have people close to them. They don't have people close to them. So that means the pastor has to put themselves around people, ask people to get in their life, put people into their life. They've got to be around people that can get in their life enough to where they know something ain't quite right. Are you struggling? Are you okay? That they can hold them accountable. That they can pray for them and strengthen them before they ever have moral failure, if that were to happen. But the congregation, on the flip side, has to recognize it's our job, too. It's our job. You can invade your pastor's life a little bit. That's okay. That's okay. Verses 3 and 4. The first one is appoint godly leaders. In verse 3, we see, he said, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut 
and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and some of their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Now we see that some houses earlier had been rebuilt, but not like the majority of them. Second thing we see, you've got to follow the leaders. So you've got to appoint godly leaders, but then you've got to actually follow them. And in this, I mean, um, not just to obey leaders, right? You're obeying God, first and foremost. But if you've got godly leaders, um, then there should be some form of being able to follow their example, right? Paul tells us to follow him as he follows Christ. But really, I want to also mention, um, here's what Nehemiah is doing. He's giving direction. He's been a part of this from day one. He knows what's best for the city. He knows what God has called him to. He knows where they're going. He knows the big picture vision of what's happening. Good leaders will take you somewhere. Good leaders will take you somewhere. You might have been part of churches where um, you just didn't feel like you were going anywhere. Individually, um, you weren't led. Or maybe you had a really good pastor or good leadership, but um, they were good in the sense that they were kind and they wanted the best for you, but they didn't take you anywhere. There should be vision that's cast that's God-sized in any congregation that you're a part of. Um, something that you know, if we do this, this is going to be bigger than ourselves. This is, this is going to be um, a challenge that will force the congregation to uh, abide in Christ. That you can't be a part of this thing and not abide. You've got to be trusting uh, a vision. Now, how in the world do you know um, if the church that you're a part of has godly vision? Well, here's the, here's the big deal breaker. And there's probably several, but here's the main one. It's got to revolve around the Great Commission. If you find a local church with a mission and vision um, apart from the Great Commission, they might be off track a little bit. They might be off track a lot bit. Um, social justice is great. Um, and just being sweet and nice to people is good. Um, we're here to make disciples of Jesus. We're here to preach the gospel. We're here to walk and live out um, the gospel in our lives and in community and together. And so it's got to be about bringing the gospel to the nations, to the city you live in, to the state you're in, to the nation, to the world. Um, how many of you know the vision of Crosspoint? You can rifle it off. Yep. Yep. Love God, grow up, serve all. So yeah, that would be what we would call our discipleship process or or a, a summary of the Great Commission. Um, sometimes mission and vision kind of, one accomplishes the other. Um, so that's how we're going to accomplish the vision. That would be the mission. Anyone know the vision? Reach 10%. Yeah. So then how do you reach 10%? Will you teach them all? Like Leah says, to love God, grow up, serve all. And that's just a different way of saying, go make disciples of Jesus is what we're saying. Um, but ultimately, um, You've got to know what your church is going towards, um, what, what, what God has asked them to do. When we started, um, we started a church out in Utah back in 2012, uh, we cast vision from day one. There was just a few people even day one, um, and we were casting vision that we wanted to plant gospel-centered churches that in turn planted more gospel-centered churches. And we even told them within two years, we want to plant another church. And we hadn't even planned it. I mean, <laughs> Gosh, looking back, it sounds crazy because we didn't even have anyone part of the congregation. It was just Tara and I, and we didn't know anyone in the city. 
kind of a bad game plan. Um, but we told them from day one, and we expect to plant churches and be a gospel-centered church that plants more churches and, and, and over and over and over. And within a little over two years, we planted another church. Um, and out of that, we continued to cast that vision, cast that vision, cast that vision. Um, I'm going back to Utah here in a few weeks as they are going back to the basics because they find themselves off track just a little bit and they want to get back to that original uh, vision. And they said, come, let's talk about it some more. And, and um, whether for nostalgia's sake or what, um, they want me to come back and, and, and talk about it. But you've got to cast vision. You've got to go somewhere. A church will eat itself alive if it's not moving somewhere. Your energy is going to be spent consuming something, either the godly vision that you have or each other. And you don't want to be fighting and got a bunch of um, junk going on internally. And you won't be able to focus on that stuff if you're externally getting out there and making an impact in the city. When people get complacent, uh, they start to fight. They start to complain. They start to grumble. And God gives vision for a lot of reasons. The big picture plan and the health of the local church. You've got to have vision and you've got to follow that vision. Make sure you're part of a congregation that communicates vision clearly. And that it's of God. Verses 5 and 6 and then all the way up to verse 38 because we're going to jump into uh, the list. It says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. So there were Jewish writings um, at that time, obviously, that had written down um, all of these genealogies. And he found, And I found written in it, These were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So that was 100 plus years earlier and roughly there was an exile in 605 BC, uh, 595-ish, and then 587. And that's when uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, as they were known, um, the 10 northern tribes had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And then Judah um, and, and another tribe, were taken into captivity ultimately in 587. And then, so that's uh, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the king of Babylon. He, he did that. Um, and so it's coming back from that exile. That's what the context of this is. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now those northern tribes, they never ever came back. Um, let me restate that. They came back, but they had intermarried so much that they did not look like themselves anymore. They are what we know as the Samaritans. So if you wonder why there's issues between Samaria and Judah, they were right next to each other, but it was the 10 tribes, all kinds of different after hundreds of years of being exiled, and then uh, these exiles that came back to Judah. All right, let me read for you here. This is going to be fun. I got to get you excited here. This is going to be thrilling. Verse 7 ish. Verse 6. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. I just read that. Sorry about that. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own. And they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, Banah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Prosh, 200... 2,173, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Era, 
652, the sons of Pahath Moab, namely his sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2818, the sons of Elam, 1254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Benai, 648, the sons of Bebai, 628. If you're looking for uh, names for your children or grandchildren, I'm sure there's some amazing ones in here if you want to tick off your family. The sons of Asgad, 2322, the sons of Atacam, 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2067, the sons of Adon, 655, the sons of Ader, namely of Hezekiah, 98. If you're wondering why I'm making us do this, because we're going verse by verse and we're going to do it. The sons of Hashem, 328, the sons of Bezai, 324, the sons of Herip, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem and Nedophah, 188, the men of Ananoth, 128, the men of Beth. As Maveth, 42, the men of Kerioth, Jerem, Shep, Hurrah, and Beeroth, 743, the men of Ramah and Gibah, 621, the men of Michmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 123, the men of the other Nebo, or the sons of Nebo, 52, the sons of the other Elam, 1254, the sons of Hurim, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, the sons of Sanaa, 3,930. 3, All right, verse 38. We're halfway done with this chapter. This is, this is a barn burner of a chapter here. Third thing we see, you've got to shepherd the flock. So if you're setting up a church, if you are ultimately uh, planning a church, you've got to appoint leaders, you've got to follow those leaders, and you've got to shepherd the flock. Here's what is happening. If you go back to verses 5 and 6, it says, Nehemiah says, God put this into my heart to assemble the nobles and officials. Now, if you remember way back in Chronicles, remember another time when um, a dude named David put together uh, a list of everyone he had in the kingdom? Was that a good thing or a bad thing? See, I'm asking questions to get you guys, get you, get you back into this a bit. It was a bad thing. God was ticked. It says the devil incited him when he wanted to take um, up a census of the land. And here, Nehemiah is saying, but God put this into my heart. So this is taking a census, um, but of God. To assemble the nobles and officials and the people to be enrolled here. And he found it and he wanted to keep track of it. And so the whole list is about the people that he was keeping track of. That's what shepherds do. That's what pastors do. That's what a congregation has to do, do within itself. You've got a shepherd. You've got to keep track of. You've got to know, where are my people? Who's in this congregation? Who's not? If you ever wonder, why do we have membership classes? That's one of the reasons we have. You don't get brownie points in heaven if you sign up as a member of Cross Point Church or any other church, right? Um, you could come and you could lie. You could say, yep, I'm a believer and I've been baptized. You could lie about all of it if you really wanted to. Um, it, it's not like um, it's some foolproof way to make sure that you're in the kingdom of God. But it is a way of you saying, hey, I've been here for a while. Maybe I've attended for months or years, and I just want you to know I'm committed. So if I do something that I shouldn't be doing, you have permission to speak into my life outside of just that stage. But you can call me out, and I'm going to call you out, and we're going to walk together, and we're going to be the church together. That's what membership um, does. It lets each other know. And you might say, ah, you have to do all that to do. Listen, we live in a day and age where people will come to a church for months and years and listen, 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 but they don't serve, they don't, they don't give, they don't make an impact. They don't, they don't want you to speak into their lives. And sometimes it's super awkward when you're wondering, are you in or are you out? Can I talk to you? Can I not? There's people who will intentionally go to churches living lifestyles that they know are against Christianity and they will um, come and listen, sometimes for the sake of mocking, sometimes for the sake of just legitimate interest. Um, but you got to know, 
At what point do you hold them accountable as part of the congregation? At what point can you talk to them and say, hey, let's, let's, let's talk seriously about what's going on here. We've, you know, and not just, you know, small talk, but hey, let's, let's talk about your life and your faith. Do you have faith? Do you not have faith? Let's talk about things. Um, like that's, that's real stuff that a congregation has to deal with. But Nehemiah, he's got a heart for shepherding the people. He wants to know who's in the congregation. And ultimately, he's keeping track of them. He does it because these people prior to exile, and they had the promises of God. They still got the promises of God. And this is all about covenants that were made hundreds of years before. And he wants to know, and he wants to keep purity of those covenants and say, you guys have rightful land given to you. That's why this list is here. Um, it's not just random names of random people. These are people who are the people of God. And it's important to keep that covenant purity. So, what do we do? Um, what are some practical ways for us to shepherd the flock? Well, for me personally, I mean, this is my prayer life, right? I'm constantly, when I'm praying, um, praying that we would be pure, that we would be um, a group of people where the word of God is rooted in our hearts and it's producing fruit. And that fruit is repentance and obedience and understanding mercy and grace and the love of God. Um, I'm praying against the enemy and his attacks on your life. I'm praying um, for the work of God to increase and continue. I'm praying for all of these things. I, I, I think about you. I've got, and I'm not a journal guy, but I have to be a journal guy because I've got to write down names. I've got to write down people that I'm praying for so that I can shepherd the flock in prayer. Um, this is what so much of uh, counseling is about, is shepherding the flock, talking with people, shepherding the flock. You guys might think, you know, what does Ryan do even on Sunday mornings? He doesn't hardly preach, so he's just kind of a glorified janitor or something. I don't know what he does. Well, one thing that I do is I run around and I try to shake as many hands as I can just to say hi to people because they might not call on me that week, but if I can get in front of them enough times, um, then six months down the road when they're struggling, maybe they'll feel like they can call me. Maybe they'll feel like they can connect because I could have three meaningful conversations out of 400 people on a Sunday morning or I could just give, I could, I could have a whole bunch of, of little ones uh, recognizing that bigger ones could come down the, the pipe. And so that's what I do. I just try to make connection with people so that I can ultimately shepherd them in their time of need and find out who's, who needs help and what's going on in the lives of the people. Um, but you got a responsibility to do this as well, right? What do you think the primary way for the church, you guys, um, to shepherd each other, to take care of each other at Cross Point Church? What do you think the primary route for that would be? Grow groups. Yeah. We knew long before we had a bunch of people at part of this congregation that we, we can't hire staff to take care of people statistically one pastor uh can take care of roughly 80 to 100 people in terms of pastoral care hospital visits calling people meeting with people all that kind of stuff investing in their lives and statistically the average church in america is between 80 and 100 people and that's probably not a coincidence and we recognize um we don't want to spend all of our money just to take care of each other when the people can take care of each other there needs to be pastors there needs to be leaders um, but ultimately you got to have avenues for that. So that's why we set up. That's one of the many reasons why we set up grow groups so that you have people. I'll tell you what, 
honestly, sometimes I'm blown away at the impact of grow groups. There's there's a whole bunch of times, and like I'm not talking small percentage. I'm talking a large percentage of times where I'm one of the last people who knows what's going on with the congregation. Someone had a baby, someone's in the hospital, someone got hurt, someone needs help. You know who finds out usually right off the bat? Their grow group. Grow group leaders, the people in the grow group. In many cases, they've already been with them. They're taking care of them. People don't often even ask for the pastor. They've got their own people. Um, Whether you're a church of 50 or 5,000, You've got to have avenues for people to take care of each other. If you think of a grow group and you think, do I want to go to a grow group or not? And you base it on this. What will I get from it? You'll probably talk yourself out of it. Because what you will get from it isn't the most amazing one hour of teaching that you're going to ever find each week, even though I hope you have great conversation. It's the relationships you build. It's the long-term investment. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. But you'll build camaraderie. You'll build community. You'll keep church small. Um, and that's a big deal. But it takes, it takes effort. It takes a lot of effort. Are you taking ownership of the people next to you? If you, if you left, whether it be Crosspoint or if you are visiting from another church, if you left the church you were at, um, would the ball get dropped on someone that was being taken care of? Or do you have influence in enough in anyone's life enough to to be the one who is shepherding them in any way, shape, or form? Verses thirty nine through sixty. And I didn't write it on there because, well, I didn't want to write all of this. Let me <laughs> let me let me rifle through these. The priests, the son of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emer, 1,052. The sons of Peshur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Kadmiel, of the sons of Hodavah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asab, 148. The gatekeepers, the son of Shalom, the sons of Ater, and the sons of Talman, and the sons of Akub, and the sons of Hatida, and the sons of Shobai, 138. I thought, just for a second, I thought, wouldn't this be a wonderful night? because I knew this passage was coming, if I had, like, one of the young pastors here, like, learn how to preach on this night. I'd talk to him about it just for fun, just to see. How do you guys feel about preaching chapter 7? Anyway, the temple servants, the sons of Zehi, the sons of Hasiphah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidil, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rehi, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pesiah, the sons of Bezai, the sons of Munim, the sons of Naphish, the sons of Bakbak, the sons of Hakafah, the sons of Harfer, the sons of Basilev, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Hashra, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tamar, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hadaphah, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sodai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Parida, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkin, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatiel, the sons of Pokeroth, Hazabim, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. All right. That's good. Yes. There you go. Oh, my. Okay. So what in the world do we get out of that? Um, here's what we get. Out of those 21 verses, you see four sections uh, of people listed. Um, The priests, and they were all listed from verse 39 on. 
uh, in verse 42, the Levites, and then the temple servants, and then the sons of Solomon's servants. So they were broken down specifically um, for a reason. And so the fourth thing that we see is when you're part of a church, you've got to find where do you fit? Everyone fits. In the kingdom of God, everyone's invited to the table. Um, you fit relationally. You fit in service. Uh, you fit in that congregation. Ultimately, you've got to take ownership. Um, you see, here's the beautiful part about lists like this. If you were at home, let's be honest, we would all just rifle through that and we'd have a hard time seeing anything good. But many times when it comes to lists in the Bible, um, God shows the unity of his people, God's chosen people, and also highlights um, the individuality of the people within the group. And so that's what's happening here. You see the uniqueness of the individuals and you see the unity of the group as a whole because ultimately, we know in the New Testament, we are one body, but we got different parts. And here's the awesome thing. Notice how, they're, how, how these are broken down. The priests, they got a job. The Levites, they got jobs. The temple servants, they got jobs. The son of Solomon's servants, another reference for um, more temple servants, they got jobs. It's not listed based on who gives the most money. It's not listed based on who has the longest attendance in exile. It's listed based on where do you serve? So let me ask you a question. If this was Crosspoint Salina, would you be listed? Would you even make the list? If it's another church that you go to and you're just popping in on Wednesday nights, okay. Would you be listed on your own church's genealogy list here when it comes to categorizing based on where they serve? Would your name even make the list? Where do you fit in? Where do you fit in at Crosspoint? What would your name be if it was even thrown up there? Would it say instead of the priests and the attendees and then list your name under that? Instead of priests or Levites, if it says um, the curious or the consumer, the one who likes the religious goods purchased (laughs) or provided at this local church, what what would your name be listed next to if it was listed at all? Where do you see yourself fitting in? There's a group of people at Crosspoint and most all churches that you can connect with relationally. Some people say, I just don't feel like I connect. You got to put yourself out there. You got to put yourself out there. But I know in general who's part of the congregation. And so many times I hear people feel or say, ah, I feel like I'm just not connected. I feel kind of lonely. What do you? And I'm thinking in my mind, my heart's just burning. I know there's people that you would get along with. I know there's people going through what you've gone through. I know there's people who are coming up and about to go through what you've gone through. I know there's people going through what you're going through right now. It's not always exactly, but it's enough to where you can connect with them. Sometimes you just got to ask. There's an open door opportunity for you all the time. If you want to get connected to people, like-minded people, um, I, we as leaders, we might be able to help. You got to put yourself out there. Where do you fit in when it comes to serving? Let me give you permission. It's okay if you're serving to stop serving and to serve somewhere else. Sometimes you just got to take a break. At Crosspoint, we want to make sure that people serve wherever God has them serve. Sometimes you serve because you see a need. That's an awesome thing. Other times you serve because you know you've got gifts in a certain area. That's an awesome thing. Sometimes you serve for a season and then you stop. That's okay. There's an unspoken pressure 
and an unspoken. Um, now I think it's become a, a trick from the enemy to keep people from not serving that if I get locked into something, I'm locked in forever. And people hesitate. They don't want to jump in. They don't want to jump in because it can be hard. But there's opportunity for you. And maybe even more important, there's opportunity for you to try things out, to find out where do I fit? There's ministries that haven't started yet that you might help start. There's things that don't fit into a little church box that we can break that box and we can reach our city in unique ways by the heart that you have and the gifts that you have. This is part of my joy as a pastor is that I want to sit down, I want to talk with you, I want to walk with you, I want to hear your heart, I want to find out and discern what's God saying to you, what, what um, and how does this fit into um, what we as a whole church since God is doing. But the pastors have to be available and wanting to equip you and walk with you and empower you, and we do. But you got to want and you got to initiate that desire. you got to come and say, hey, I want to sit down and talk. I don't know. Um, maybe you don't have a clue where you would fit in. Maybe you see that and you say, this is alarming. I don't know that I would even be listed because I don't know when the last time I served the local church. That's a big hump for a lot of people in the kingdom of God to get over because it can be super scary to serve in a way. You've never done it before. If you've never done it before, man, I feel you. Personality-wise, mine is one of being an introvert. Um, I wouldn't serve because I just didn't want the relationships that came with serving. It wasn't that I was against serving the kingdom, but I was new to Christianity and I was just scared that I was going to have to be around and talk to a bunch of people that I didn't necessarily want to. And it wasn't because of them. It was because of me. But I eased my way into it. And now I look back and I think, man, I wish I was serving from the day I was born. Like There's nothing better in life than to serve the kingdom. So you got to take that step. Where do you fit in? You got to find where you fit in. It's my job and my pleasure to help you do that. There's always an open door. Verse 61. And the following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Sherib, Adon, and Emer. But they could not prove, this is a weird little passage, but they could not prove that their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. How horrible. We all go to exile together and you come back and some people got the right paperwork and some people don't. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that my heritage is in this land and that my people are your people, but I can't prove it. Whether they belong to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzili, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzili, the Gileadite, the Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. This is a key. This is a key. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. We've talked about this in the past, but priests had, they had garbs. Uh, they had garb on their, on their robes and stuff. And part of the garb was this Urim and Thummim. And scholars have a hard time understanding what exactly it was. Was it a form of casting lots? Was it the spiritual ritual? It was this way for them to commune with God, the priests. It was their way for making decisions. It was their way of um, consecrating things. We don't know exactly, though, what it was like, but when you see Urim and Thummim, just know this was some sort of process um, that the priests had and they had alone. 
Fifth thing we see, though, out of this passage. Don't compromise on God's standards. So you get a church up and running. You're preaching the gospel. You're serving your city. People are serving each other. People are living in the community. Things are good, right? And then what? You can drift. You can coast. Because here's the deal. If you think about um, imagery of what the church is, picture, picture the culture that every church is in. Right? The culture that we have in Kansas, that we have in America, it's like an ocean. It's always moving back and forth. It's always going back and forth. Sometimes it's calm, and you barely recognize that the culture is, is there. Um, it, it sometimes agrees with the church. In the 1990s, it wasn't super hostile towards the church. Now it's becoming increasingly hostile. Sometimes it's waves and wind, and it's a storm. But picture the culture like an ocean. Picture the church like a ship. The church is in the ocean but it's not of the ocean it's not a shipwreck it's not down below but it's staying above the standards are different we live different we are set apart from the culture and so we are on top of it but we're not down in it in the sense that again we're in but not of we're called to be a light in it and then picture christ as the anchor he's what holds everything together word of god when a church starts to slip a church lowers the bar, lowers the standards from everything from salvation to what it means to actually follow Jesus to the qualifications of pastors and church leadership. Things go downhill quick because the winds of the culture, the waves of the culture will not stop. Ultimately, they keep moving. And if you're not careful, your local church will find itself battered back and forth. And if it lets its anchor get pulled up, that is Christ and the word of God, then it will start to get battered more than ever before. That's how drift happens. Because you pull up the anchor. First thing you see, typically go. Doesn't, part, doesn't matter what, what denomination you're part of, what church you're part of, are the standards. When the gospel gets watered down and the standards for following Christ are lackadaisical and the gospel itself is watered down in the sense that you don't preach sin and so you don't know that the good news is good news because no one wants to say the bad news because people don't like conflict, you're headed for disaster. And the standards are the first ones to go. When they get lowered, your doctrine will always follow. It typically always follows. It's not the doctrine and then the standards. People don't wake up having a thriving, amazing relationship with God and then go change their doctrine into something heretical. No, but people who get lackadaisical in their relationship with Christ and they start to sink and that ship starts to go underwater a little bit and they become more like the culture than they are Christ. Then doctrine changes. It's standards first. When they get lowered, doctrine is soon to follow when it comes to a shipwreck. Because you've got to recognize the culture fights fights against the church it always will but the church has got to stay above it so what do you do how do you protect the christ-centered standards of the local church well there's a lot of things you can do but here's four number one you got to teach them (laughs) you got to teach them you got to teach the righteousness of christ you got to teach sin you got to teach grace you got to teach the full counsel of god you got to teach how amazing heaven will be and you got to teach how horrible hell will be. you got to teach it all. You can't shy away from it. If you notice at Crosspoint or anywhere else that you're a part of, that the standards for that the gospel isn't being preached, you run. 
you hold the leaders accountable. Uh, you talk to them, and if they don't repent, you run. Because you know this ship is going to sink. If it's not being taught, there's nothing to hold it up. The anchor's been pulled. Number two, you've got to personally live them. You can look around at the, your local church and say, ah, there's a lot of people not living right, and you can just be a Pharisee. But you've got to recognize, you are the church. And if you start looking at your own church like you're an outside perspective, from an outside perspective, then you've separated yourself from the very people that you're a part of. You're the one who's got to hold the standards of Christ in your own life. You've got to personally live them. Number three, you've got to hold those leaders accountable. Again, get in their lives. Talk to them. Go sit in their office with them. Take them out for coffee. Serve together. Find out how they live. Invite them to your house. Sit across the dinner table from them. Get in their lives a little bit and find out who they are and make sure that they are um, not only teaching but personally living them out as well. And then number four, you've got to recognize shifts. Recognize shifts in the culture, shifts in the church. There's cracks, right, that you can see. Like if you want to know if someone's doctrine is going to um, go downhill, here's an easy one. One question. This is all you've got to ask your local church. How do they view the word of God? Do they hold it in high regard? Do they view it as infallible and inerrant, never changing, but always changing them? Do they submit it to it or do they argue against it? Do they preach it or do they manipulate it? You look denominationally all around the landscape, church to church, whatever the case might be. You want to know what happens when they don't see the word of God as being up here and then being down here, it speaking over them? They will start to change it. They'll start to manipulate it. When they start to change it, manipulate it, they'll decide. And you'll hear stupid things like, well, that was the context back then. And Paul wouldn't have preached like that. He wouldn't have said that if it was today. And you start to hear some of that same rhetoric and you'll start to say, uh, 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 don't like it. Do not like where this is headed. And it'll start with small micro shifts. It'll be non-essentials like um, baptizing babies, women in ministry. You'll start to see some of these little cracks where it's like, well, I might not like what the Bible says, but it seems pretty clear what the Bible says. And so um, this is an area where the culture wants us to go this way. And I just feel like you just kind of have to read the Bible and just do what it says, even if you don't like it. You just submit to it. And if you see your local church starting to give in in some of those areas because they're taking a little bit of heat from the culture or even their own denomination, you run. You run far away because what will start as something small a little crack will turn into something huge. And I can tell you, if you guys, this isn't like I'm not giving you something prophetic. I'm just telling you the demise of many churches and denominations. This is how things split and crack. When a little crack gets in, it'll get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you want to know what the one is after women in ministry? And then, and then the um, you, you, homosexuality. And it just keeps going. And then what's sin? Is anything sin? And then you, it just goes on and on and on and on. We could do case studies of churches and con- or denominations as a whole. And you see the same patterns over and over. Ask yourself one question if you want to know, is Crosspoint's doctrine going to go downhill? How do they hold the word of God? How do they hold the word of God? Do they bow down to it? Do they submit to it? We don't have everything figured out, but you've got to protect your doctrine. You've got to protect your theology. It's the core. And Christ is the anchor. Last but not least. All right. Verses 66 through 73. Man. 
How many of you have been a part of a 73-point or verse teaching before? This is, boy, I bet this has been riveting. I, um, yeah, I'm going to trust I'm going to trust God. I don't want to downplay it. I'm going to trust God doing something. This is God, this is the word of God. This isn't just Ryan teaching. This is God's word. So the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337 and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245 because you need to know how many mules there were. Their camels 435 and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the fathers, this is where it gets good here, gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave it into the treasury of the work, 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. But what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests... The, sorry. You ever, you ever see like one of those commercials where like, Someone, this charity, like, gives kids, like, a whole bunch of new shoes or whatever. I just picture the priest that day, like, did you hear? There's, like, 67 garments coming in today. This is going to be the best day ever. Anyway, they're all like, look at the new garments. And, okay, sorry. So the priest, this is the last verse, I promise. The priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all, I love it, some of the people, some of the people, we'll just throw them in there. The temple servants and all of Israel lived in their towns, and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. All right, number six, you got to reflect the gospel. Here's the big idea. You see a whole bunch of things listed, right? Here's what is happening. The people are learning to sacrifice. If you're going to be part of a church, church plant, community, and the kingdom of God, you find that we reflect the gospel. The gospel at its very core is sacrifice. And so what's happening in these passages, these verses, you see they start giving financially, right? They start giving of their riches. They start Ultimately, giving, because we saw through different verses and chapters before, their effort, their time. They moved cities. They took ownership of this work. They all moved into the town, um, and many of them wanted to live in villages outside. They were together. They had fellowship together. They learned sacrifice. Does this sound familiar? sounds like Jesus, who left his riches in heaven to come down to earth. He gave not only his time and his energy, but his life to submit to the Father and to die on the cross for us. He fellowshiped with us. He was with us. He took ownership of his creation. And he paid the price on the cross for us, ultimately dying. Wednesday nights, I hope that you grow. I hope that you mature. Wednesday nights are not primarily about knowledge. They're primarily equipping you to sacrifice, to reflect the gospel, to not just enjoy the riches of the gospel, but to let the gospel be planted in your heart in such a way that you want to reflect it. Because you know God will get glory. When people see people living like Jesus, they know normal humans don't do that. They live differently. When they see the kingdom of God, not just built with bricks and mortar, because this building can't build the kingdom of God. It can be a tool. But when they see the kingdom being built in your heart, you live differently. You live in an upside-down kingdom where Jesus is king and you're the servant. And they see you live differently. You act differently. You talk differently. You do things differently because you love Jesus. God will be glorified. You'll be a disciple maker. And ultimately, in return, they all moved into Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in Revelation there's going to be a new Jerusalem. One with streets of gold, and it's going to be awesome. And one day, you and I, we ain't moving into this one. This was 2,400 years ago. Now, you could. You visited that Jerusalem not too long ago. But you could go to that Jerusalem. That'd be good. But there's a better Jerusalem that's coming down the pipe. And one day, we get to go. And there's going to be mansions, and there's going to be feasts, and we're invited to both. And it's going to be awesome. 
And so we sacrifice now because Christ sacrificed for us. And one day there will be no sacrifice because of what he has done on the cross. It'll be pure bliss, pure joy. This is why we establish kingdom in our city, in our hearts. We let God do his work. We do it in response to what he's done for us. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you. I thank you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that there's a kingdom that is not broken, but it is pure and it is holy. And it's a spiritual kingdom that we, we pray you would grow in our physical bodies, grow in this physical building, in this city, in this state, nation, and world. We just pray that your kingdom would expand. Help us to know, God, that we can't be pragmatic when it comes to church planning. We can't just do certain things and voila, it's all going to be perfect. God, because we know we can't put you or your word in a box. But we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us in such a way that we would be planting gospel seeds and that we as your people would cultivate that at work, at home, in our grow group, in this local church. God, that we would see your kingdom expand. God, we know one day we're going to be in your kingdom physically. Jesus is going to physically be there as our king. It's going to be awesome. And we can't wait. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.